electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Frank. And welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead with the Dow up 48 points this hour. A perfect storm. That's how one of our guests describes the environment for private equity right now. And he says we're not even in the eye of that storm yet. He joins me momentarily to make his case. Plus, the Magnificent Seven may have been the engine behind the first half market gains, but our market guest says it's time to bet on the underperformers and go fishing in the value pond. He brings three names in particular. Plus, autos, Hollywood, healthcare. As the labor movement gains steam, we look at the trades you want to avoid and the companies you may want to buy because of it. It's in a special edition of Three Buys and a Bail today. But first, let's start with these markets. And Dom Chu has our numbers. Hi, Dom. All right, it's green and decently so. But remember, we're coming off a pretty bad day yesterday and a three-day losing streak for the S&P 500. But right now, the Dow Industrial is up about one-tenth of one percent. That's about 40-some points to the upside, 34. 4,112, the last trade there. The large cap S&P 500, broader measure, 4,350, the last trade, up 20 points, roughly one half of 1%. And that trading range again for context here, up about 27 points at the day's highs and up about three points at the day's lows. So there is your trading range tilting a little bit towards the upper side of things. The NASDAQ Composite Index really pacing the advance so far, bouncing off some of those lows, up about three quarters of 1%, 106 points to the upside, 13,329, the last trade for the NASDAQ Composite Index. Another place, of course, we're watching very closely related to that tech trade and just about everything else in the markets right now is the dynamic and in interest rates. Long-term U.S. benchmark 10-year government note rates currently now ticking lower. So bond prices bid to the tune of 4.43%. Remember, the cycle high that we saw just yesterday was roughly 4.49%. And that's the highest level going all the way back to November the beginning of November of 2007. So if you take a look at those long-term yields and just yields overall, they are just starting to back off a little bit, indicating at least some buying interest. We'll see how long that lasts. And then the hot IPO picture. Remember, over the past couple of weeks, we've seen arm holdings on the chip side of things, Instacart, very high-profile food delivery, grocery delivery, and then Klaviyo, online marketing platform. Those three stocks have been some of the most talked-about IPOs, and I just want to put it in context. Arm Holdings IPO'd at 51 bucks, Instacart IPO'd at 30, and Clavio IPO'd at 30 bucks. If you take a look at those, we're hovering right near their IPO prices. And Arm Holdings, Kelly, just again for context, at the post-IPO highs was up 33% at one point. If you look at Instacart, that was up about 43% at its intraday highs post-IPO and up about 31% for Clavio as well. So that's how far it went up 
and then how far it's come down. We'll keep an eye on that IPO market and see whether it says anything more about sentiment in this market. I'll send things back over to you. I think it tells us quite a lot. Dom, thank you very much. Dom Chu. Stocks may be a little higher today, but they're headed for a negative week as high interest rates and concerns about a hawkish Fed continue to weigh on performance. Negative returns have also been weighing on the private equity industry, which was in the red last year after a decade-long upcycle. And my next guest says the years-long rush into private equity will not end well because a perfect storm is brewing with rates on the rise. Joining me now is Dan Rasmussen. He's a partner at asset management company Verdad Advisors. Dan, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Kelly. So high interest rates feels like kind of the main culprit here, but what else is going on? Yeah, there are three big problems facing private equity. The first is that about uh, all, most of private equity is uh, leveraged, about 60% net debt to enterprise value for the average buyout, and almost all of that debt is floating rate. And so as rates have come up dramatically, the average interest costs for these LBOs are rising dramatically. Hmm. Second problem is tech is 40% plus uh, sorry, private equity is 40% plus uh, exposed to the technology sector. Technology valuations have been falling. Um, and so as you see multiples coming down, that's creating an additional problem. And third is that fundraising is flowing, which affects both, uh, really affects valuations as well. Yeah, so and it kind of feeds back into what Dom was just talking about with IPO performance, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I think the uh, private equity IPOs are the most successful IPOs, and you've seen those uh, IPOs come up and then their valuations fall, and that's not good for the exit story. Uh, the other thing you have to remember is that a half of private equity exits are actually sales to other sponsors. So even more than what's going on in the public market, you care a lot about how private equity fundraising is done. Private equity has been, I mean, is it, is it fair to say very successful in the zero interest rate world we've been in the past decade? Assets have gone from two to, I think, almost four and a half trillion. It's now, you know, upwards of 20, 30, 40 percent of some pension fund portfolios. I think there was even a, a warning about uh, some of the public pension funds falling to, to 2007 funding levels because of their losses on private equity alone last year. Yeah, I mean, you've had a you've had a changing story, right? So pre uh, pre the financial crisis, private equity was outperforming public markets by 400 to 600 basis points a year. Um, post the financial crisis, that outperformance has been basically zero, um, and the fear is that it won't even be that. You know, that, that's comparing against the very strong S and P 500. So matching the S and P is a great outcome, uh, but my fear is that the next decade uh, could be significantly worse um, because when you're borrowing, you know, large amounts of uh, private equity uh, is Again, debt finance, uh, when it was financed at zero, that was a major enhancement to equity returns. But when you're borrowing at, you know, 12 percent for some of these LBOs, uh, wow. it's much harder to math work. I've read that a lot of private equity returns in recent years have also come from multiple expansion more than kind of revenue growth or, or margin growth. I mean, 12 percent. It's interesting you say that because the, the flip side of this is that leveraged loans have been a very well-performing asset class this year. So while most other interest rate uh, type products are in the red, those actually investors love precisely because they offer 12 percent. And they're, you know, these are a lot of corporates that people feel, well, maybe, you know, Petco or whatever the, the case may be. Um, you know, these are blue chip company. I, I, I don't know what the argument is, but um, is the very success of leveraged loans the problem for the companies who are now seeing those funding costs rise? That's exactly right, Kelly. I, I call it fool's yield. Twelve uh, percent sounds good, might make you want to buy, but you're never actually going to get a twelve. Uh, what ends up happening is that the excess yield is compensating you for default uh, risk, and that default risk tends to materialize in a correlated fashion at exactly the worst time for your portfolio. Uh, and so what you see for uh, for, for bonds uh, that is single B rated, about 30% of them default over a five-year horizon. 
Um, right now, the single B rate is, you know, call it 8%, 9%. Um, and your levered loans, again, are yielding 11 or 12%. So you're talking about something that looks worse than single B, more than 30% plus default rate, historically over a five-year horizon. We've had historically low default rates over the past few years, both because rates have been at zero, because the economy's been doing well, and because we've had a lot of government stimulus during COVID that prevented bankruptcies. Uh, and my fear is that uh, people have gotten acquainted uh, to this low bankruptcy rate environment and have, uh, as a result, been take, willing to take risks that uh, really aren't prudent when you look over the long sweep of history. We've seen critics, everyone from Warren Buffett to um, Cliff Asnest, saying that, you know, the smooth nature of the way that private equity funds report kind of hides the real volatility of what's happening with the companies that they own. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I, I invest in small caps, which uh, are often a hated sector of the market because they go up and down so much, right? The volatility is very scary. Uh, and I think people can uh, really get turned off of small caps because the volatility is so high. And the average small cap has a market cap about $900 million. Uh, the median market cap for a private equity deal is about $180 million. So these are much smaller than small caps. Uh, when you look at the standard deviation of the volatility of private equity, um, it's about 8 or 9%, which is about what investment-grade bonds, uh, investment-grade corporate bond volatility, whereas uh, small caps are about a 23%, right? So you're basically getting micro caps uh, with volatility that looks like investment-grade bonds. Hmm. Uh, my argument then is when you think about how much people would allocate safely to small caps, you might say, gee, maybe I'll put 5% of my portfolio, 10%, but I can't really take much more than that given the volatility. But people in the pension world, the endowment world, are putting 40% of their money uh, into private equity, which um, is smaller than small caps, and by the way, is significantly more levered with floating rate debt. Right. And there's just, I want to point out, in kind of implicit in this is a warning about private credit as well, which is how a lot of these deals get done in an asset space that has gro grown tremendously. Uh, people are concerned about, you know, what the ultimate fate of these companies may be. But, but let me kind of ask you this. Is there is there a, a sort of silver lining um, for pension? You know, maybe your typical pension fund or college endowment would say, I, I would never want a portfolio of micro caps, but maybe Maybe the smoothed nature in the historical, maybe they end up benefiting because in the long stretch of time, more of those companies are successful and, and they might not re meet their risk appetite, but they actually can deliver, you know, strong returns in the long run. I don't know if there'd be a case that it's good for them to kind of get drag <laughs> dragged into this area. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, if you look at the classic research by Eugene Fama, the Nobel Prize winner, and he segments the public equity market into large and small and value and growth. And what you find is that large cap growth and large cap value have over long periods of time delivered about the same return. Um, small cap value has delivered a premium, that's the value and size premium. Um, but that small growth stocks, which are the small expensive stocks, have consistently been the worst performers in the market by a large margin. So when you go and buy small companies at very high prices, especially small unprofitable companies at very high prices, um, you tend to be punished for doing so. Um, and that's because you have higher bankruptcy rates among small companies. Uh, it's because when you pay very high prices, it's because you have very high growth expectations that aren't always realized. And uh, when you compare the say, small growth companies to large growth companies, you know, um, Amazon or Facebook or Google, the, you know, those big large growth companies uh, are really great businesses. Whereas you go down to a $200 million market cap company and you're paying a price that's the same as you're paying for Amazon, the chances it's going to end up being Amazon hmm. are, are a lot lower. Uh, and so as a result, you know, I look at private equity and say, hey, 20 years ago, private equity was providing micro-cap value exposure. You could go into private markets and you could buy companies at lower valuations than you pay in public markets. And that was a good thing for investor portfolios. And that's why the early adopters of private equity, like Yale, 
um, earned huge premium returns for doing that in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Hmm. Um, but that shifted very dramatically over the last decade, Kelly, and we've shifted from a value exposure in private equity to a growth exposure. You've gone from 10% of buyouts being taxed to 40% of buyouts being taxed. And you've gone from valuation multiples that in the 90s were 40% below public markets to valuations that are today um, significantly above um, the S&P 500 and, and matching or even slightly above even the Russell 2000 growth index because it's quite high. Interesting. So this is not the private equity of yesteryear. It's fascinating. And it goes to show that maybe waiting till growth is large is exactly the strategy. Uh, surprising and, and counterintuitive, although confirmed by the first half performance. Dan, thanks so much for joining us uh, to make your case today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Kelly. Dan Rasmussen with Verdad Advisors. Kind of the perfect transition to my next guest, who is a small cap value picker. And <laughs> We didn't even do that on purpose today. Let's bring in Sandy Villery. He's a portfolio manager at Villery & Company. Sandy, uh, that's like the perfect pitch for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just think that, that growth has just had too much of a run. I mean, last time I was on, I was telling your viewers, you know, growth, especially the Magnificent Seven, I mean, up 35% year to date, time to take some profits and, um, and and look at the value area that's only up 2% year to date. And I think just kind of, you know, hitting that point home, listening to, you know, listen to Powell on Wednesday, you know, when he's just talking about rates being higher for longer. I mean, I think the market totally got it right, selling off tech and, uh, and watching bond yields, you know, pretty much surge, you know, to 16 year highs. So, we definitely want to be in that value-oriented area. I um, think there's a lot of a lot of opportunity there. Even in, I mean, you know, Palomar, you know, might say, you know, okay, that's more of the insurance play. Pool Corp, right? Caesars, that might make some people know. These these are names that you think are uh, are interesting, are attractive, and I, you know, despite everything that Dan just said, I'm pretty sure most viewers go, you know, I I, I just think there's more momentum and growth. There's look at you know look at the track record. Yeah, and I think people will get their opportunity in growth. I just I think you're going to see a 10 or 15 percent correction in a lot of those names. It's just just the way the math works with higher rates. They should they should pull back. And 2022 wasn't too long ago when when growth was down 30 35 percent. Uh, but as far as my names, you know, some of the names I, I mentioned today are more growth at a reasonable price as opposed to some of the boring value names that we do have here at Villar and Company. And so um, when you look at a pool corp, um, you know, you go back historically. The only time you can really buy it is when there are these macroeconomic headwinds uh, like housing starts. I mean, they are tied to new pool construction. And so, uh, you know, they will have 70,000 pools this year. But but that that part of their revenue, uh, as far as, uh, you know, new pools um, uh, related to the company, is only 17%. The, the majority of their business is just boring repair and maintenance of your swimming pool. So as long as people don't let their pools turn green or black or fill them in, right. you know, every pool built is another annuity. So we like it a lot. So let me ask you, Sandy, just kind of the 30,000 foot question as well. What is the impact higher interest rates is having on small caps? Because after listening to Dan, I'm thinking, you know, that, that better be one of the top screeners you're running is to make sure that you're, you know, staying away from companies. I don't know how much of them is floating. I'm sure a lot of these can still do fixed rate issuance, but still. Yeah, no, it, it's 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 definitely an issue. And uh, when you look at Caesar specifically, I mean, they, they do carry a lot of debt. All casino companies do. And so that is one that's going to, uh, frankly, I think that's what creates the opportunity because uh, it's been marked down a little bit uh, due, due to higher rates. So uh, things like that make me, um, you know, kind of kind of interested if there's a short term, you know, blip on something, uh, usually a good uh, buying opportunity. So definitely want to watch how uh, rates impact everything. And and uh, those those that, that, that carry too much debt are going to be, you know, somewhat exposed. So 
uh, you definitely want to be careful uh, looking at every individual company from a, a bottom-up oriented standpoint. Yeah, do the work is like the mantra these days. Sandy, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Sandy Villery with Villery & Co. Now, we've had a flurry of Fed speak already today, and Fed Presidents Mary Daly and Neil Kashkari are speaking on the economy right now. Steve Leisman is here with those headlines. Hi, Steve. Hey, uh, Kelly, just some headlines from San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly, who is saying inflation uh, has been too high for too long, uh, repeating a mantra that's been out there from several Fed officials today. And she says holding rates steady will provide the t- uh, more time for the Fed with which to make better policy. Inflation, she does say, is coming down. The labor market uh, is gradually adjusting rather than abruptly. Talks about the idea of bringing down inflation as gently as they can. But she's not ready to declare victory until she's confident that inflation is headed back down to target. But she adds patience is a prudent strategy right now. Let me recap some of the other headlines we had. Susan Collins, a bit more hawkish, the Boston Fed president, saying she expects rates to stay higher for longer. And she's in agreement with the statement and the forecast. But she goes on to say that further tightening is not off the table. The Fed will stay the course, she says, to achieve the Fed's mandate. And recent statement, uh, the recent Fed, Fed policy statement and its policy should not be taken to mean the Fed has reached the peak funds rate just yet. The pathway to a soft landing, however, she said, has widened. And then real quickly on Fed Governor Bowman, she says she expects it will be appropriate to raise rates, going further than Collins in her language, appropriate to raise rates further and hold them at a restrictive level for some time. She says there's continued risk that energy prices could reverse progress on inflation. Uh, and she has seen considerable progress on lowering inflation. But again, inflation is still too high. And this last one I thought was interesting. She points out that strong consumer and corporate balance sheets, along with credit available from non-banking sources. Remember, she's one of the banking specialists on the Fed. She says that limits the effectiveness of monetary policy on the economy. Kelly? All right, Steve, thank you very much. Dow still hanging on to about a 37-point gain. We'll see you later this hour, our Steve Fleisman. If you're house hunting this weekend, you know what you're up against. Not a lot for sale, much higher mortgage rates, and home prices rising again. Let's dig into that last one in particular on prices. We got some new data. Diana Olick joins us to explain. Just in time, Diana. Just in time, Kelly. Look, most of the home price data out there is about one to two months old. But a new company called Parcel Labs is using thousands of housing metrics and, of course, throwing in some AI to get prices daily. And we've got special access to you and the charts to show you. So first, let's go nationally. You see the daily price change up top and year over year at the end on the right side of the graph, which is up over 5%. So you can see where they dipped in the part of the winter which is seasonal, but the climb higher was seriously sharp in prices this spring. There was a big dip at the start of August, which, go figure, was exactly when the 30-year fixed went over 7%. But prices recovered quickly, even with rates now still over 7%. Parcel tracks the Case-Shiller Index closely, but the last read we have for that is June, and it showed prices flat after recovering from negative annual appreciation. So let's go local now. Denver is currently the hottest market of the major markets with prices up 19% from a year ago. Parcel also tracks investors and says that for every home that sells there, investors are buying two. That's why prices are going up so much. That is not the case in San Francisco, where prices are up just 6% year over year, but have been falling steadily since July. Why? Because for every home bought by an investor there, 
four are being sold. And I know you want to see New York City prices up nearly 18% from a year ago and still rising again, despite these higher mortgage rates. Prices, of course, are strong due to low supply. We heard the Realtors chief economist yesterday say we need to triple supply, Kelly, triple it before prices can cool. This is fascinating. It'll be very helpful as well, uh, not just to gauge home prices on the kind of the official metrics, but inflation and, and all the rest of it that keys off of that. You mentioned seasonality. Is the, are these daily prices seasonally adjusted somehow? No, they're actually not seasonally adjusted. But what's really interesting is that we haven't really seen any seasonality since the beginning of the pandemic. And I want to show you, I'm sorry, you guys, one more chart. If you'll bear with me, one more chart. You can see from 2020, prices steadily going up and not really any dips in that seasonal uh, adjustment that you would generally see when prices tend to get lower in the fall and higher in the spring. The only dip you saw was in 2022, right around April, May, June. And that, of course, was when the Fed first started raising interest rates. But now, even with interest rates higher, again, you're seeing prices climb very quickly. Wow. Diana, thank you very much for bringing that to us. A new new metric to track. Uh, we're always all ears for those. Diana Olick with the daily home price numbers. Now, privately owned high-speed high speed railway Brightline. You might know it from these plans they have in Vegas. But they launched a new route today linking Miami to Orlando. The first train rolling into Miami's station this morning. Brightline saying passengers can expect this trip to take three to three and a half hours, depending on stops. That's a trip that by car takes about four hours. Now, separately, a Brightline train was involved in a deadly accident in Delray Beach today. Police confirming a pedestrian was hit and killed. Joining us now is Brightline owner and new Fortress Energy CEO Wes Edens, along with our very own Morgan Brennan. Uh, quite a day here, Morgan. Uh, it's quite a day. Uh, and Wes, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being with us. Uh, major milestone for Brightline. I do want to start, though, the, this fatality. I realize it's under investigation, but it does raise questions when you're talking about intercity rail, about safety. So how are you thinking about that at Brightline in terms of infrastructure and operations? Uh, well, uh, first of all, thanks for having us on, and uh, it is a great milestone for us to celebrate today, so it's, that's really great. I mean, the tragic news this morning of uh, an incident, um, obviously still under investigation, but, you know, um, there's really two um, related issues. One is the issues of just safety, uh, generally speaking. You know, rail uh, transit is the most safe form of transit, period. It's safer than driving a car. It's safer than any other form of, form of transportation. So uh, we know we're on the right side of safety as an industry with it. That said, um, in particular, suicides and you know, self-harm incidents are not just a problem for us, but they're an industry-wide issue that exists. It's something we take very, very seriously. Um, there's obviously a lot of issues about you know, mental health, substance abuse that are kind of wrapped up into those. Those are really, really tragic incidents and uh, something we're deeply concerned about. Um, but we think that when in the, on balance, when you look at the safety record of passenger rail travel, it actually comes out with you know, great remarks. Yeah. And certainly our hearts and prayers out to, to the person uh, this morning in that accident. Um, but, but Wes, you and I have been talking about this. This is a major day for Florida. It's a major day for rail advocates. <clears throat> You've come on and spoken to me about, as we've had every step of the way, the, the rollout of this railroad for five years on CNBC, the fact that we're seeing it now. This is the first private passenger rail in a century in the U.S., and we haven't seen it before now because economically it wasn't viable. What's changed? Why now? 
Uh, it's been a minute, Morgan. It's uh, 100 years since Henry Flagler's train, more than 100 years. You know, since then, we've invented the automobile, the airplane, space travel, cell phones. So what's really happened with rail? Rail, 100 years ago, was the primary form of travel between cities. You know, the U.S. then made huge investments in interstate highways and in airports, and we have a lot of the, that infrastructure that exists in the country. But we've really fallen way behind in terms of inner city uh, travel. So and over the last 15 years in particular, there's been a massive amount of inner city high-speed rails that have been built around the world. China, from a standing start in 2008, has 27,000 miles of high-speed rail. The U.S. has exactly zero. So this is the first, um, what I believe, of many of these projects now that will work. We know that the economics work inner city. Um, we have had great uh, response to our passenger service in South Florida to start, but opening today in, in uh, Orlando is a real milestone. This is, uh, there's not that many milestones in life, maybe birth of a child or you know, some other you know, notable event. This is a real, real moment for us and for the industry, and we're really, really excited to be here. And Wes, it's Kelly, real quickly, as I mentioned earlier, this project between Los Angeles, Las Vegas is, is very exciting. Um, I, I don't mean to sound ungrateful, but why aren't the trains faster, right? Like, if you're going to build the tracks and if you're going to do all this work, why not a bullet train? It's totally ungrateful. No, it's actually, uh, the, the issue is that basically, that when, here in Florida, we used existing train uh, tracks for much of the uh, route. Uh, we, at the, uh, you know, in the time we owned the Florida East Coast Railway, so we could go up the coastline and follow those tracks. That's cheaper to do, and it's actually faster to build, but you can't electrify because other, you share that, those, those train tracks with freight trains and, and, and other customers. So when you go to a true uh, um, high-speed rail, so what we're gonna do from Vegas to LA, we're actually gonna build that train in the median of I-15, that has two advantages. One, you can put a fence around it, so there's no rail crossing, so your safety record will be unmatched. Number two, you can electrify it. And so not only will it be a, a, an electric train, it'll be a green train, because we've already bought renewable power for it. And then you can actually operate at very, very high speeds. So, you know, 200 plus miles an hour, two hours from Las Angeles to Las Vegas. So um, you're complaining about the one here. It's better than the one that existed before, so it's been 100 years. But now we think in the West, you're going to see the first of what I believe is going to be a flurry of high speed rail developments around the country. So the Florida Railroad is a $6 billion project all in. Uh, Vegas to Southern California is expected to be $12 billion. Regulatory hurdles and also funding. What's the investment case? Uh, you know, that's really, the, that's really the benefit of what we're doing right here is that when you think about it, that you need um, a, a right of way in order to build on it. You need then basically the, you know, the permits and the authorizations to then go ahead and build. And you need the money to do so. And the money to do so is really uh, funded by uh, you know, an economic case that you know is viable. And so what we will have here is we'll have basically a real proof of concept. We're going to have an actual economic model that we can actually point to, and that'll help us get funding, not just for the next uh, of these trains we're going to build, but for ones that go future. So that's the big, big benefit of having version 1.0 get off the ground. Once we think we get to version 2.0, you know, then, then it's just off to the races, because we know they're viable. They're viable all over the world. And in fact, they're very viable here in the United States. You know, the high-speed rail from Washington to uh, to New York with the Acela program that uh, Amtrak runs so successfully yeah. is a very, very successful you know, program itself. So. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually profitable, whereas some of the other Amtrak uh, routes are not. Okay, I, I got to shift infrastructure gears here before we let you go, Wes, because you have your hand in a lot of things, including energy infrastructure with New Fortress Energy. We've seen crude move back towards 100 bucks a barrel. Nat gas has pushed higher as well. Uh, at a time where everybody is focused on the energy complex and what it means for the broader inflation picture, your thoughts? 
You know, I think that uh, it's, it's really an interesting time in the world. You know, it seems that higher interest rates are obviously a challenge. Higher energy prices are also a challenge. And, you know, we're seeing that the price of delivered diesel in the markets we operate in is roughly twice as expensive as gas. So it makes the, the case for cleaner natural gas even more compelling. But even with that, you know, higher energy prices are a real concern. And I just think that while we're in the middle of this energy transition and we all want, you know, cleaner, cheaper energy in the form of renewables and others, you know, you're going to have these, these moments where the fossil fuels really do kind of spark up. And it seems like we're going through a period like that now. It creates really some challenges in these in the different countries, including here you know, on the roads. Wes Edens, always great to speak with you. Congratulations on the milestone and thanks for being with us here on The Exchange. Kelly. Morgan and Wes, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Uh, exciting times. Still to come, New York is the new private club capital of the world with dozens of exclusive members-only spots for the, for the rich. Coming up, we'll go inside one of these spaces to show you how the wealthy are socializing in the post-pandemic world. Also, take a look at shares of Coherent jumping in the last couple of minutes on a Reuters report the company has attracted interest from four Japanese conglomerates for an investment in its silicon carbide business at a valuation of up to $5 billion. Eight and a half percent pop for shares of COHR. The exchange is back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Today's top story, the flavor merger of the century between the peanut butter group and Chocolatey Corp. Joining me is a PBC executive. Thanks for having me, Barry. Now, how did you know the merger and the byproduct of it, Jif peanut butter and chocolate-flavored spread, would be a success? You know, it was a gut feeling, a rumbling, if you will. Besides, they're two titans of taste. Very true. Goes great with pretzels. And pancakes. Apples too, I bet. Try Jif PBC today. Nine-point decline for the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which has given up its earlier gains and, and erased an 86-point gain in particular. We'll watch it uh, in the red this hour as we get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler? All right, thank you very much, Kelly. Senator Bob Menendez spoke out against his recent indictment, an indictment from this morning, claiming he has been falsely accused of accepting bribes. Menendez was charged this morning for allegedly accepting thousands of dollars in bribes from wealthy businessmen. He's accusing prosecutors of misrepresenting the normal work of a congressional office and said these charges will not distract from his work in the Senate. The U.S. is committing $65 million in new aid to Haiti to help local police battle the surge in gang violence there. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken also urged the United Nations Security Council to formally support the deployment of a multinational security mission to aid in this effort in Haiti. Blinken said the U.S. will not deploy troops, but would support the mission with logistical and financial assistance. And Anthony Nesty will be the first U.S. black swimming coach at the Olympics. USA Swimming selected him to lead the men's team at the Paris Games next year. Nesty is the University of Florida's coach and works with top swimmers like Bobby Fink and Katie Ledecky. 
He was also the first black male swimmer to win an Olympic gold medal at the 1988 Seoul Games. Kelly, back to you, and congratulations to him. Indeed, Tyler, thank you very much. I'll see you soon. Coming up, the broadening UAW strike. Economic losses are already estimated to be over $1.5 billion. We'll get the latest on the negotiations and the fallout for the automakers' bottom lines. The exchange is back after this. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome back. Shares of the Legacy 3 automakers are mostly higher again today. GM down fractionally, despite the United Auto Workers Union expanding its strike at GM and Stellantis plants just a few hours ago. Ford is the outperformer with a nearly 3% gain. Why? The UAW held off on increasing walkouts at its facilities. Phil LeBeau is here at the picket line with the latest on negotiations. Phil? Kelly, we are at the Mopar Parts and Distribution Center in Centerline, Michigan, just north of Detroit. Mopar is the parts and distribution wing of Stellantis, and it is one of the locations that is now shut down because the workers here, about 200 of them, are now on strike. There are 38 locations between General Motors and Stellantis, 38 locations with about 5,600 UAW members in 20 states. Those are now, all of those locations, they're on strike because the UAW says there's just not enough progress being made with General Motors and Stellantis. Here is Sean Fain, president of the UAW, talking with us oh, about a half hour after everybody walked off the job today. We want our members to get their fair share of economic justice. And when they talk about chaos and all that, we have to plan. We have to plan for the worst case scenario. We have to plan because we know how these companies act. And we know that we, we planned on the fact that they were going to screw around and wait till the end like they always do instead of getting serious about our members' concerns. So we have a plan in place. And call it chaotic. Call it what you want to call it. It's strategic in everything we're doing. And this, the companies own this. This is on their shoulders. Everything that's happening right now is on their shoulders. They own it because they chose not to take care of the membership. Point of contention in these negotiations, not just at the parts and distribution centers, but also at the assembly plants, is the elimination of tiers, pay tiers, where somebody is hired at this level, but it takes them a number of years to make it up to the top pay level. And from the perspective of the UAW, that has to be eliminated. Well, General Motors did send a statement after this latest round of uh, walkouts, and in the statement, the company said it is working to end this strike with the UAW. And at the same time, they pointed out that when it comes to parts and distribution employees, they have already offered to move them up to the same level of pay as assembly line workers. As for Ford, as you mentioned, Kelly, they are not a part of the strike actions announced today. Sean Fain says there is real progress being made between the UAW and Ford. 
but they still have a long ways to go. Kelly, back to you. Phil, thank you so much. Our Phil Lebeau reporting straight from the picket line. My next guest says this strike can last well into November, given the current levels of UAW's strike funds and its strategy to halt work at targeted plants. Out of the big three, he does expect Ford to reach an agreement first. It has the largest union membership. GM shares could be the most impacted, and they're already down 2% since the strike began. Let's bring in Dan Levy. He covers autos at Barclays. Dan, overall, I'm surprised how well the auto shares have held up. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I think some of the stock price performance perhaps reflects that these stocks were already embedding the impact of the strike. Um, folks have had a sense that there was going to be a strike for quite some time, and, uh, and this is now playing out in many ways, as people thought. The initial impact, based on this more targeted approach, is perhaps uh, not as bad as what some people feared. Uh, and I think there's currently already some impact that's being embedded in terms of uh, ultimate uh, cost that's going to be absorbed by the OEM. So there's already some of this that's being embedded into the stocks. So when we look at, the, you know, so GM made $10 billion in profit last year, Ford lost $2 billion. If they get two-thirds of what they want, the union, that is, how much annual profit could we be talking about uh, as a hit to these companies? Yeah, so on, on a pre-tax basis, uh, for, for 2023, GM is looking at something in the 13 to $14 billion range, forward in the 11 to $12 billion range, just to frame what uh, the costs are for labor, we're talking about roughly uh, six to seven billion dollars annually for U.S. hourly labor. Uh, some of the the requests that we've seen have been up to essentially doubling that. So if the if if the D3 gave in on on all of the requests, it would be a, a very significant hit to. Uh, total profitability. We think that a, a more reasonable scenario is that there's maybe $2 billion of incremental cost that's absorbed by the OEMs, and they're likely taking some actions to offset that via cost saves or pa perhaps passing some of that to suppliers or holding on to price where they can. So you think this will be resolved with Ford soonest. Um, just kind of g give us the detail on that. And when we say resolved, do we mean resolved because uh, the workers get more of what they want or Ford has some leverage over them? You know, the setup for Ford is a little different than it is for uh, GM and especially for Stellantis. Ford is the largest employer of U.S. hourly labor between the D3. There is a much higher percentage of their uh, U.S. Of their manufacturing in the U.S. versus uh, Stellantis and GM that are relying a little more on, on Mexico. Uh, from a financial standpoint, Ford is a little more disadvantaged than GM, and especially Stellantis, weaker margins. And historically, they've actually generally maintained better relations with, uh, with labor uh, than we've seen at the other two automakers. So we sort of had a sense that there was a, you know, a better setup. We saw Ford reach a deal with Unifor, the Canadian workers, the Canadian union, uh, earlier this week. And so it's not a surprise that we saw this morning that there is progress we think perhaps a reasonable scenario is that in the next week or so, perhaps, there is full resolution. At the other two, at GM and Stellantis, GM, uh, maybe it'll take a little longer. You know, our assumption is that a, a lot of what's going on at this point, we think that there will be some discussion on wages and COLA. But another key discussion point, and this is what's differing between the automakers, is product allocation, plant closures. We've seen reports, obviously, that Stellantis wants to close. 18 plants, and that's probably a sticking point in these discussions. And so what would you do if you were Mary Barra here? What would you like to see her do, I guess? 
You, you know, I, I think that um, the the automakers are are trying to obviously put out uh, offers that reflect the current economic realities, but at the same time recognizing that there is a, a long-term transition that they are making. Um, EVs, as we know, are, are going to be generally uh, uh, less labor intense. We know that the economics on EVs currently are, are not attractive. There's also an economic reality that some of the pricing that's in the market right now may not be sustained. So if you look at some of the street numbers, you'll look at, you'll see Ford and GM estimates coming down in the coming years, in part reflecting normalization of pricing. And so I think that the offers that are being put forth by the automakers are likely reflecting some of these realities. Sure. And of course, at the same time, Toyota has just announced plans to triple electric vehicle production uh, in 2025 from its 2024 plan. So those shares are moving higher. Much at stake. Dan, thanks for joining us. We appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Kelly. Dan Levy from Barclays. If you've got $200,000 lying around, then New York City has a club for you. Robert Frank is across the river with the details. Robert? Hey, Kelly. Well, for those who like to stay above it all, private membership clubs have exploded in size and number across the country, especially here in New York. We're going to give you an exclusive first look inside the king of clubs, here in Midtown Manhattan, and we're going to tell you how much it costs coming up after the break. Welcome back. As a quick market check shows, the Dow at session lows down 75 points now. The S&P has also turned negative, while the Nasdaq is clinging on to a 32-point gain in what's otherwise going to be a red week. But if you're still in the green from, you know, meme stocks or something the last couple of years and you want to rub elbows with the likes of the Kardashians and Bill Gates, you can do that at one of the dozens of private clubs cropping up in New York City for a cost. Robert Frank is here with a look inside the club craze and its staying power, Robert. Well, Kelly, more than a dozen private clubs have opened up here in New York just this since the pandemic. And this is kind of a new breed of private club where the business elite can socialize, they can work, they can network all outside of the public eye. And that privacy comes at a price. The new Amon Club across the street here in Midtown costs $200,000 to join and another $15,000 a year in annual dues. Casta Cipriani and Zizi's Club are both sort of focused on food and the restaurant experience. And then you have, as you mentioned, Zero Bond, which is favorite of Mayor Adams and Kim Kardashian. That's kind of more of a nightclub vibe. The big question here is whether all of these new clubs and all these new expensive memberships can survive if the economy turns south. Everybody in the space is a testament to the vibrancy of the industry, but it always will come down to substance over time and execution. And CORE launched in the early 2000s. So we've seen the peaks and the valleys, and we've navigated through all of them. This is the CORE Club, which is going to open mid-October, so really coming up. This is the first look inside. This space has three dining areas. We're in the Speakeasy Lounge, which has a wine library and the culinary lab where celebrity chefs from around the world will come and cook for members. It's got 11 hotel rooms. It's got a spa. It's got a salon, all kinds of things, along with workspaces. The price for Core Club will be $15,000 to $100,000 to join. 
and then $15,000 to $18,000 a year in annual dues. Despite those high prices, Kelly, the demand for this club is very strong. They're trying to work through all the new applications that they just started getting. So pertinent both to the business uh, question and to what's going to happen in a downturn. How hard, how expensive, how much lock it? What if you want to cancel your membership? How is that typically handled? Well, I'm not sure about cancellation. I mean, they're, they're fairly flexible with people sort of stopping and starting. A lot of people travel around the world. They move. The wealthy are the most sort of movable people in the world. And so if they move around, they can probably suspend a membership. But what these clubs are doing to adapt to that is... Core Club, for instance, they now have three clubs, Milan, San Francisco, and New York. They're opening three or five others in the coming years. Soho House, which is the sort of granddaddy of them all, Mm -hmm. they now have dozens of clubs around the world. So they're trying to make it harder for people to cancel based on the fact that they're moving just to have clubs wherever they might go. Right, exactly. All right, we'll see. And I, just like everything is a service these days. And if you're wealthy, then, then like this is your monthly uh, outlay on top of everything else. Yep. Robert, thanks very much. It does look lovely there. Our Robert Frank reporting. Let's get you a quick market flash on crude oil. As the latest rig count from Baker Hughes showed drillers cutting oil and gas rigs for the first time in three weeks. Rig count down 11 to 360. Crude prices are up half a percent to back over 90 a barrel. And still ahead, it's been the summer of labor strikes. Now at Las Vegas, culinary union and healthcare workers at Kaiser Permanente could be next to join the picket lines. We'll get the names our trader thinks can weather the turmoil and the most vulnerable one. That's in three buys and a bail next. Welcome back. Hollywood writers are in their third day at the negotiating table as the actor's strike hits the two-month mark. The UAW partially expanding its strike today as labor disputes hit industries from autos to health care. There could be even more walkouts as contracts expired last week for more than 50,000 Las Vegas culinary workers, while those 75,000 Kaiser Permanente health care workers authorized a strike if this week's bargaining sessions don't end in a deal. What's it all mean for some big names in these sectors? We're going to take a look in our strike edition of Three Buys into Bail today. Joining me now is Gina Sanchez, Lido Advisors Chief Market Strategist. Gina, it's good to see you again. Welcome. Your first you. buy is Stellantis, uh, the Chrysler parent, you know, Chrysler, Fiat, whatever, Jeep. We'll just call it the Jeep uh, parent company. Uh, their shares are up nearly 4% since the UAW strike began a week ago. Bernstein says they've got more inventory that's well positioned to weather the strike. But they've also warned about an increase in labor costs, shaving about a euro off a of full year EPS. Um, and they announced new layoffs along with GM yesterday. Why are you bullish here? So I'm bullish because if you look at the value for the margin, because at the end of the day, when you're talking about labor strikes, you're talking about increasing wages, healthcare benefits. That's really what's on the table here. So you want to see how much margin each company has. The biggest margin and the biggest winner, obviously, here is Tesla. But Stellantis actually has a very solid margin compared to both Ford and GM. Um, they don't have a ton of debt. They So they can weather this storm better. And their brand value is still off the charts. I mean, they still own Alfa Romeo. They own you know, uh, Maserati, they own Jeep, they own Dodge. Uh, I mean, these are big, big brands. Um, And so uh, I think, you know, the point about inventory is important when you're talking about a strike, you're talking about people, you know, walking out. Um, But this is a company that is also really, really well valued compared to a Tesla with great margins. And so value for, for margin, this is the bet. 
All right, up 36% already this year. Ford up 13%, GM down 3%. We'll move on to Hollywood. Disney, the writer's strike approaching its 150th day, and negotiations with those major studios are entering their third. Bob Iger, one of the executives at the bargaining table. But even if a compromise is reached, there's concerns. Uh, so let's talk about the second buy of yours, which is Disney. There's concerns about their linear TV business after the charter blackout and rumors, rumors of the ABC sale. Little concerns about how much they're investing in parks, Gina. Uh, why would you like the stock here? Well, so I think one of the things that everybody's kind of questioning is, you know, who has content, who has enough inventory to weather the, you know, the continuation of this strike um, and who's going to bounce back after. Most people are focused on Netflix because they have the biggest margins. But Disney also has strong margins. And if you if you look at their investment into parks, parks still remain one of the strongest revenue sources. They cannot raise prices enough yet to really even limit park demand, which is impressive. Um, and content-wise, at the end of the day, all of this is about content. Content is king, and Disney owns content. And so, you know, this is one that you're going to have to play for the longer term. This is one that we own. We own both Disney and Netflix. We're playing both sides of this. Uh, <laughs> but we think that Disney is extremely well-priced. And obviously, Iger, the Iger, JPEG Iger whiplash did not help. The, you know, mess at Spectrum on a big game weekend did not help. All of these things are, are missteps. Um, but we know that this is a company with strong brand value, and that's going to come through over time. All right. Quick on our last two. We'll start with your last buy, which is in the healthcare space. It's not Kaiser where we could see a strike, but it is another healthcare name uh, or hospital even. Which one? It's HCA. So we actually own HCA in our portfolio. And, you know, HCA is one of these that has, again, a strong enough margin, you know, that are around 11 percent. Actually, HCA is probably up um, a little higher than that um, in terms of margin. Um, but they're also well priced. And most of these healthcare companies, particularly H well, HCA, Tenant, are both making big investments into technology in order to help push costs down. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the, the issue with healthcare is that the demand is unlimited, um, you know, and, and so you have to figure out how to provide that demand um, with workers that you need. So right now, right. workers are the limiting factor. So figuring that out is important. Um, and if you look at sort of this, the healthcare systems broadly, which most of them are actually nonprofits, they're actually having a really hard time. Many are, many small community hospitals are at the brink of bankruptcy. Right. Um, so, you know, these big systems have a huge benefit because they can invest in, in technology. All right. Then that brings us, drumroll please, to your cell uh, or the one you're bailing on, which is Wynn Resorts. They, along with MGM and Caesars face that potential culinary worker strike. The vote comes next week. Why does this one jump out to you to the downside real quickly? So this one's tough. Look, th th this is a bad, this sector has was really hit um, in the pandemic. They have not recovered. Unlike the auto sector that has largely recovered from 2008, um, you know, this strike is really going to hit them when they're down. The outlook for even the best of these companies, which is Caesars, in our opinion, it still isn't even that great. Hmm. And, you know, you look at Wynn and their outlook is terrible. And so this is just, you know, I, I think that this this strike is going to hit them when they're down yeah. and it's going to make a bad situation worse. All right. Well, you brought us I love when you bring us full circle here. We got back to Caesars. That was a stock pick from our small cap stock picker earlier this hour. Gina, will leave it there. Thank you very much. Gina Sanchez with Lido Advisors. That does it for the exchange, everybody. Tyler's getting ready for Power Lunch, and I will join him on the other side of this break. See if stocks can go back in the green again. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. And welcome back. 
It's peanut buttery, it's chocolatey, it's the flavor merger America craved. That's right, the peanut butter group and Chocolatey Corp have become one. With Chocolatey Corp bringing indulgence to the table and peanut butter's eat-anytime ability, it's easy to see how their Jif peanut butter and chocolate-flavored spread will revolutionize snacking. One stock trader even told me, and I quote, Normally I just buy and sell, but this I'm going to eat. Experience the Jif PBC hype today. 